the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson with us tonight to look at his new book, How to Talk to a Skeptic. Now, you used a word just before the break, um, Donald, that perhaps really brings this down into a core perspective that all of us need to keep in mind when we're sharing our faith with somebody else. You use the word relational or relationship. And at the end of the day, that's really what this is about, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're engaging in a relationship with another person as we are sharing our faith, as we talk about what? Our relationship with Jesus Christ in the hope of what? That someday they too will also enjoy a relationship with Jesus Christ. Makes it a lot less intimidating that way, if you put it in those terms, doesn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Craig. But skeptics don't want to think of themselves as a project. And if they get the sense that the Christian views them as a project, someone to uh, defeat in a debate or even someone to get saved or, you know, an impersonal project, and that's not going to work. And so it's really important that we do sort of look at our own hearts, and when we, you know, the guy in the cubicle next next to us, we do have to see him as someone loved by God and who God wants to spend eternity with, right? And so, yeah, the, the, the goal of every conversation has to be the sharing of God's love, not in a non-intellectual way. I mean, I, I know some people talk about, well, you know, you just love people till they ask you why and this sort of thing, and that's good as far as it goes. But on the other hand, I think providing answers and being able to direct the conversation in a way that clarifies the gospel for that person and gives that person's re- gives that person reason to believe that is also loving the person and so uh yeah it's it's all relational i think i mean ultimately god is love i mean love i've got a chapter on that that love is the meaning of life i mean that's what it's all about and so yeah we we really do need to be loving the whatever skeptics we run into. It would be curious to see if in a study has ever been done, and I would suspect that somebody like George Barna probably has this somewhere in his library of research, of how many people uh, that we come across that may object to Christianity or put up major roadblocks to faith because they themselves um, come from a quote-unquote former religious background and maybe had some ill experience uh, in a church somewhere or um, you know just unfortunate religious experience that somehow has turned them off to their faith and therefore they become a, a staunch defender of atheism or something of that sort. Yeah, if my experience is any indication, and admittedly I'm just one guy, but I talk to a lot of skeptics, the percentage I think is really high, Craig. I mean, the, most of the um, people that call in to me or that email me and, and get in contact with me, most of them that are the hardest cases uh, I think have been hurt by the church or someone in the church. There's, there's an amazing number uh, of ex-Christians out there that are the loudest voices for anti-Christianity. And so, yeah, that's... I think it it should speak to us as Christians that we need to be uh, careful how we act, but also, I think, careful how we teach. A lot of these people come out of groups that were teaching some pretty weird things, and so they just reject the whole ball of wax, so to speak, 
um, in in rejecting something that is admittedly sort of silly. They just reject the whole thing. So, yeah, I, I would be interested to see those stats as well. Yeah, and it certainly, I think, would be very telling at the end of the day, as you point out. It's critically important to kind of keep that tucked in the back of our mind. Um, they're they're going to be looking at us, and they're going to be testing us, in a sense, to see whether or not we really believe in this faith that we talk about. Um, and, and, and toward that end, I guess it comes down to this issue of whether or not somebody has a former religious background with an axe to grind or comes at it from a particularly neutral uh, background. Nevertheless, there's somebody that we know Christ died for. And so now it's about getting in there, and I guess at, at the, the core initially, hearing more from them. I mean, again, we kind of tend to want to start this conversation by defending the faith, but I would imagine if we're going to kind of understand where we're going to go with all of this, isn't it more important to sort of draw them out as opposed to at the get-go trying to present our case? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, that's key. I mean, if you go out and start to present your case, your case right away, inevitably you will miss the mark because you don't know what they believe. I mean, you're, you're sort of shooting at a target that's not really there. You're talking to a person, uh, a person that you have in your mind, what you think they're like, that probably doesn't exist. And so, yeah, you really need to clarify that. In the same way, like I said, they're arguing with a person that they don't really know. I mean, they, they think they know what you believe. And so, yeah, you need there needs to be a lot of sharing up front, uh, sort of clarifying positions and, and getting to know each other, I think, uh, before all of the debating takes place. Now, that's not to say that you don't um, get into a, a kind of a debate. I mean, it, towards the end of my conversations or my relationships, you know, it, it could take several months. Like, when I talk about a conversation, I'm talking about potentially several conversations with a person. But towards the end of it, yeah, we do compare worldviews and we do um, debate. But yeah, I think that needs to come later on in the interaction. Let's um, hop onto the phones here and get some calls in. If you've just joined us, we're visiting tonight with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson. He's got a new book out called How to Talk to a Skeptic. Go first to Palo Alto, and we'll say good evening to Lee. Hey, Lee, welcome. You're on KFAX. Thank you so much. I have a friend of mine who is an agnostic, but he started out as Catholic, and he's the kind of agnostic that's looking for a reason not to believe rather than seeking. And I could appreciate his intelligence, and we get along. I've known him for a long time. He's very intelligent, except for when he talks about religion, in which case he doesn't make any sense at all. So I was curious, what is the gospel in a nutshell to keep my message very short? All right, good question. You want to tackle that, Donald? As far as the gospel in a nutshell, I tend to tell a quick story uh, that it's all about love. God created us for relationship. We went chasing off after other things and other people that were not as uh, as valuable. And, and I tend to compare it to like a husband and a wife. A husband goes off chasing after something that's not as valuable, either alcohol, football, or a mistress. When he should be valuing and having a relationship with his wife, that's how I see the whole story of the world, that we are a people who were made to love God, and we've gone chasing off after things that just aren't objectively valuable. And when you do that, you live contrary to reality, then things don't go right. It's like trying to run your car on water. It's just not going to work. You can't live contrary to reality if you do things go wrong. And so I tend to focus on love and 
what it means to break relationship with God. And basically, I think all of the other doctrines of Christianity flow out from that basic uh, starting point. At least the good news in this case, Lee, is that you mentioned that he's an agnostic, so he's not sure, uh, which is sometimes easier than starting with a, uh, an atheist who's certain that God doesn't exist. And I guess these days that's more of a challenge. I mean, for uh, the early part of uh, the last couple of centuries, we've seen this major shift, certainly, in the 1960s and 70s, educationally and otherwise, where all of a sudden you've made that uh, transition from having to um, um, talk about our relationship uh, to God versus that God is. And I guess oftentimes we almost kind of have to use that as the starting point, don't we? I mean, how can we talk about uh, forgiveness and having offended a God if they don't even quite believe that a God exists, uh, Donald? Yeah, that's right. And that's why I generally start out, if someone says they're an agnostic, well, they're not, they don't believe nothing. <laughs> they do have a worldview. They do believe something about reality. And so I try to get them to explore that. How do you answer those big questions of life? How did we get here? Why are we here? What happens when we die? How then should we live? Everybody walks around with answers in their mind to those questions. They live according to something. And so I try to get them to explore that. You're, you're not agnostic about everything. And after they have sort of thought about that a little bit, then you can compare. All right, does, that, does those answers make sense? Does that seem to match up with the world as we know it? What you're suggesting here, too, as you mentioned uh, when we came back from the break, is not necessarily a singular conversation. This may be a multiplicity of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we kind of get that impression. We, we think this is a lot like, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this never happens. Of course it does. But the I met a man on the subway one day. I said, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die? No, I don't. And that ensued into a following conversation. By the time we got to the next uh, train depot, bus stop, uh, taxi stand, you know, in, insert location here, uh, he had, had prayed the sinner's prayer. That does happen. Uh, but not as often as we would think. And generally, most of the people that we're going to run into, that we're going to have an opportunity to share with, are going to be people with whom we have some kind of ongoing contact, if not relationship. It's either the guy in the cubicle next door, or the kid who delivers the newspaper, or the young man who takes us out to the car every time we buy groceries and helps us bring the bags to the car, etc., etc. And so, which case then, as you point out, and it dawns on me, uh, Donald, we did not come to these positions in life over Overnight. And so we're not necessarily going to abandon them overnight. So this is, in a sense, a process. So if it doesn't go well the first time or that one certain conversation didn't quite end in the fashion in which you hoped it would, there's always the next time, isn't there? That's an excellent point, Craig. Yeah, we, we tend to want to reduce the gospel to that elevator pitch, right? Like, yeah. give it to me in the 30 seconds we have. And really, I mean, that's, I mean, I get that. I understand that. But yeah, real life doesn't generally happen that way. <laughs> you you are building relationships with people. You're you're talking to them over time. And yeah, I, I totally agree that you, you should be able to um, spread this out and not force your apologetic argument even or your or your evangelistic presentation into that elevator pitch necessarily. Our conversation with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson, the book How to Talk to a Skeptic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
We continue our conversation tonight. Donald Johnson, my guest. The book is called How to Talk to a Skeptic. You know, at the end of the day, we talk about sometimes dealing with with the the hardline, almost professional skeptics. Uh, Donald, uh, I'm thinking of those in the class of uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, and Richard Daw- Dawkins, Bill Maher, even on that list. But it's interesting. I, I've heard some of them debated, or some of the arguments that they put forward, and I've often thought to myself, you know, at the end of the day, it's not only Christians that are the ones that have to defend their views. These guys come out with some pretty outlandish comments as well. Yeah, no, you're right. They uh, not only do they have to defend their worldview, and you're right. I don't think they do a terribly good job of it. And, and often they're not asked to, which is interesting. Most of the time, if you notice how those guys debate, is they debate against Christianity. They're not usually asked to present a positive case for materialism or whatever it is they happen to hold. And that's one key, I think, to talking to to either professional skeptics or the uh, uncle or the guy next door in the cubicle, is that they should be asked to have present their worldview, to think about it, probably. I mean, a lot of times people haven't thought about it, and then defend that. And that's a real key to having a constructive uh, conversation, I think, is that you have to think about what you believe in a positive way, not just be anti-Christian. And a lot of them are anti-Christian. We talked prior to the break with the previous caller about this whole issue of, of, of the agnostic out there. And I guess in this day and age, what with uh, uh, recent discoveries related to the so-called God particle, um, irreducible design, uh, things like um, intelligent design, uh, that there's more and more scientific information out there, too, that also lends credence uh, to, to the so-called Genesis account. Does that also stand in our favor in terms of sharing our faith and making a case for the existence of God? Yeah, I think the evidence, wherever you find it, is always in the Christian's favor. Because if it's true, it's true. And Christianity happens to be true about all of the universe. So wherever we find truth, whether that's through scientific investigation or philosophy or psychology or wherever it is, that truth is, if it's accurate, if they're not just making stuff up or presenting false claims, obviously, but if it's accurate, it's going to line up with the Christian worldview. And so, yeah, we never be never need to be afraid of new discoveries, you know. The truth, wherever it's found, is going to match up. And, and I think that's one key to having a good conversation is to not, you know, sometimes we present it as, well, I mean, there's these facts over here, but I just take on faith that Jesus is my Savior. And by that I mean I put my brain in my back pocket and I don't have to think about it anymore and I don't have any evidence for it, but I just believe. Well, no, that, that's not the Christian way, I don't think. God, God loves uh, presenting evidence to us, and he gives us plenty of it. Yeah, at the, at the end of the day, Christianity is not some irrational belief system that we just adopt totally by faith, whether or not it might be uh, some fact here or there. I mean, the ir- irony is, if we just take the time to do the research, um, we find all kinds of extra-biblical um, uh, information uh, from the archaeological accounts and historical accounts that lead credence to the teachings of what we learn from the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Every realm of, of discovery, I think, uh, should be embraced by the Christian. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, science is a good one. Archaeology is excellent, and it consistently confirms the biblical accounts. Whenever um, science is done right, and, and I guess that's a key. I mean, sometimes science is presented as a philosophy rather than a, a uh, mode of, of gathering knowledge. And so they say, well, science has disproven God. But what they mean by that is 
there is nothing that exists besides matter, and that's all we... Well, no, I mean, we can't accept that. But in general, yeah, every sort of, of uh, knowledge-gathering endeavor that humans do, it's going to line up with Christianity, and so we can embrace that. What do we do with comments uh, such as the person who says, well, I've done some studying of Christianity, and I find that there are uh, pagan myths and accounts of this sort that are made up out of the mystic world that seem to be similar to some things that I read in the Gospels, so why should I believe what the Bible says any more than a pagan myth? Yeah, that's a good question, and that's a very popular objection these days, and becoming more so, it seems. Uh, what I like to do is, first of all, clarify, all right, what parallel myth are you talking about? Let's, let's look at the data and see what the facts actually are. And then some guys, they do just stop there, and, and that's fine. I mean, they try to disassociate Christianity from all the pagan myths. Actually, how, the, the approach I take is that I embrace a lot of the parallels that are out there. I say, yeah, you know what, there's, there's some parallels. I mean... Uh, there's some pagan myths that are uh, similar in some respects to the Christian worldview, but I say that's actually to be expected, I think, if Christianity is true. Because according to Christianity, God is the creator of all. He put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then humanity spread out from there. So, And he's revealed himself, Romans 1 assures us, that no one is left without knowledge of God. So we have this general revelation to all people at all times. If that's true it makes sense that when people try to explain reality through their myths, that there would actually be some parallels, that they're, if, they're, if they're interacting with an objective reality, and that is the God of the Bible, that there would be some similarities. And so I take sort of a C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton approach to this and say, those myths are a precursor, they're a shadow. It's not that Christianity took the stories from those myths, it's that those myths actually took their stories from Christianity. It's the other way around. And so Christianity is this, the actual story, the true story, the historical story, God in time and space. And the myths are the shadows that are uh, they, they come from that, I think. And so, yeah, I, I take sort of a, a broader approach to that, embrace the truths that we can embrace with people, and then try to show them that, well, Christianity is not like, it's not the same as those myths. I mean, it's history. Jesus appeared as a man in Galilee 2,000 years ago. So that that's, you know, a, a hard fact. What but, about those that take the dismissive approach to say, well, you know, I've, I've seen the way these Christians act. They behave fairly badly. I've seen the hypocrisy within Christianity. And uh, I don't go to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite. What of that argument? Yeah, that's a common one. And I think uh, on one hand, you can sort of uh, take a coldly logical approach and say, <laughs> say well, you agree. <laughs> Yeah, of course, yeah, you agree. Hey, uh, you know, we're all sinners, we're all hypocritical at some point, uh, but that's what Christianity teaches. Christianity doesn't teach that we're all perfect, and that, you know, if, if Christianity is true, then all people will be perfect. I mean, you don't see that anywhere in the Bible. We're sinners, saved by grace, and, and uh, being transformed into the likeness of Christ, but that's an ongoing process. And so, on one hand, it, I mean, logically, it's not a very sound argument. I think just sort of emotionally and psychologically, you want to just embrace that and say, you know what, uh, I've hurt people, I've been hurt by people, I mean, that's how, that's how life is, and I apologize if that works, you know, on behalf of my fellow Christians. But really, that doesn't speak to Jesus. I mean, certainly Jesus didn't teach us to do that, right? And Jesus wasn't like that. So let's talk about Jesus uh, and, and see if, if his message resonates. It's amazing when you think about it um, in the arena of Christian 
uh, apologetics, how logical so much of this is if you just bring it back to the core issue of being relationship-centric. And as we mentioned a couple of segments ago, at the end of the day, that's really what this is all about anyway. You're not trying to create animosity. You're trying to build a relationship, and you wish to build a relationship to share your faith in the hopes that the person that you're sharing with will sometime or someday have a relationship with Jesus, too. And so when you look at it from that angle, then this becomes far less about trying to win my point or beat you down or, uh, you know, be the winner of the forensic uh, team, but rather to simply love a person to the saving knowledge of Christ. The book, How to Talk to a Skeptic, published again by Bethany House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks to author Donald Johnson, also Christian apologist, for being with us tonight and offering some great insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is a nation that occupies headlines on an ever-increasing basis. In fact, one of the major trading partners with the United States, particularly for technology. We might be surprised to find out that almost anybody these days that calls a service center for information more than likely will have that telephone call answered in India. It also, to the San Francisco Bay Area, provides one of the largest numbers of folks coming to the United States to work in the technological field on HB1 visas. And yet, for as much as we know about the nation of India, it remains a continent of 1.2 million people shrouded in curiosity and mystery. Joining me today in studio is the president of Mission India, Dave Stravers. Dave, welcome to the conversation. Hey, it's great to be with you, Craig. India is an amazing continent. Uh, For anyone that has been there, it is a nation full of sights and sounds and everything from extreme poverty to extreme opulence, thinking of things like uh, the Taj Mahal, for example, and, and, and a nation that perhaps more than anything is changing more radically on a day-by-day basis than perhaps any other nation in the world. Why is that? Well, no one knows exactly why. But uh, certainly when India came into the international economy in the early 1990s, uh, that was part of the big social change that started happening in the country. And what we've noticed, those of us who have been traveling the last 30 years in India noticed that at the same time, the Holy Spirit was doing some remarkable things with the Indian people generally, who for centuries have been very resistant to almost any kind of gospel witness outside of just a few small pockets of Christians in India. And now, for the first time, are are open as they have never been open since the coming of Christ. So the explosion that we've seen there has not only been economic and technological, but most certainly spiritual. And it's interesting because it's a bit of a dichotomy. India is probably one of the most spiritual nations on earth, and yet not predisposed towards spiritual things much as we would think of it in a Christian context. Yes, Indian Indians are very spiritually minded. They're very sensitive to the invisible uh, powers around them in uh, in ways that many other Asians, in fact, and certainly Westerners are not. And actually, Indian believers, when they come to Christ, also uh, bring with them some just remarkable spiritual gifts. Uh, Indians know how to pray like no one else that I've ever met around the world. And so, um, actually, all Indians pray. Uh, people will tell you every Indian, well, maybe there's an exception here or there, but there's 175 million Muslims that do their prayers, and there's uh, almost 1 billion Hindus who pray every day to one god or another of the millions of gods that they claim. 
So when when the gospel comes to this place, you don't have to convince Indians that God is real. The question is, which God? Who's God? Uh, and who's this Jesus that you're talking about? Let's speak to that point for a moment, Dave, because I can see, as many are familiar with, bringing the gospel into an area where there is a spiritual vacuum. For example, we saw a tremendous thrust into evangelism in places like the former Soviet Union following right. the fall of the Iron Curtain late. 1980s, I think, Romania the first to fall, and then we know it kind of went like dominoes. Certainly China has been an interesting example of that, into which we can bring the good news of Christ into a spiritual vacuum. But here, you don't have a spiritual vacuum in India. You really have sort of this this mishmash, uh, claiming more than 330 million gods, and it isn't unusual to go to any community and find a Hindu temple there where there might be at least locally 10, 20, 30, 40 different gods. How challenging is that in terms of them bringing in the news of yet, in this case, another god from an Hindu perspective? Well, uh, actually, when it's one Indian witnessing to another Indian, it's not challenging at all. It's very easy at this point. Uh, that's one thing that, that, that God has been doing in India. Uh, someone will say, well, uh, they get to know a Christian, and they talk about their needs, and the Christian will say, well, we pray to Jesus, and the Indian will say, well, how do you do that? Uh, there's a genuine curiosity on the part of most Indians regarding that. And so prayer to Jesus actually is perhaps the number one evangelistic tool in India. Mm. There's constant power encounters. Now, there's not a spiritual vacuum, but there is great turmoil and I would even say despair, a kind of hopelessness because of uh, the, you might say, the theology or the beliefs that most Indians have grown up with regarding uh, just the the hopelessness of, of of improving their lives somehow. You know, the teaching of karma and reincarnation, uh, really those beliefs have to do with no change. And from a spiritual standpoint, too, isn't it a, a new concept from a Christian perspective in that the vast majority of gods that they wouldn't worship in India, there is a sense of doing so out of fear? Uh, in fact, I think the term kowtowing, uh, has Indian roots in talking about a sense of wanting yeah. to appease the gods. So now when you interject into the conversation, this other god, who isn't a god that comes to bring a message of fear, but rather a one that brings hope and forgiveness and personal relationship, yeah. these have to be fairly mind-boggling new concepts then. It is mind-boggling for an Indian to say, this god, Jesus, who created the world, came to love us, to give himself up for us, to sacrifice himself for us, and to grant us a gift of eternal life. This is mind-boggling. It's too good to believe at first. And uh, praying to this living God and receiving answers, powerful answers to prayer to this living God who loves you, uh, this is very compelling. And that's why uh, there are literally millions of Indians coming to Christ every year right now. Where do you see some of the most significant growth? We've seen examples of cases where not just Western-style democracy, but Western-style economics comes in. People get a taste for technology and a better life, and so they sometimes get absorbed by a sense of consumerism. As much of that happened with the the economic changes in India? Uh, the vast majority of Indians, of course, are we would consider to be incredibly poor. Uh, 350 million who earn less than the absolute poverty line, $1.25 a day, and 
900 million who earn less than $2.50 a day. If you earn $3 a day in India, you're considered middle class. So in a country where uh, the cost of food, uh, medicine, clothing, uh, it's less than here, but not that much less than here. So uh, many Indians will spend more than half of their daily income just on food, just to try to keep body and soul together. So uh, health needs, uh, just basic physical needs are, are incredibly intense for Indians. And then there is uh, the social needs. Um, how do I put this nicely? Uh, there's con- constant conflict in Indian families, in Indian communities, conflict between castes, conflict between genders. There is extreme oppression of women, uh, the plight of women in India. Uh, uh, we're only just beginning to see the tip of the iceberg with the stories we've heard about the rapes of women, uh, the infanticide of uh, newborn baby girls. Uh, young girls are not highly valued, and um, men beat their wives. And so many women actually resort to suicide because they live lives of, of quiet, hopeless despair. So the, the, the social needs and the physical needs are just so intense. When a Christian comes and says, there's a God who loves you, who cares about this, who can actually deliver you from this despair, uh, that is a very attractive message. Pretty fertile soil. So we're talking then of the economic and technological growth that's happened in India over the last decade and a half, two decades. Much of that then has really just touched the top tier, the top fifth of the population. So well, you're still right. looking at a nation that economically at its core yeah. is in, it remains in pretty dire straits. Yes, and you have uh, consumer price index inflation has been hovered around 10% for the last 10 years. Food inflation has hovered around 20% for the last 10 years. Per annum. Per annum. Wow. If you are in a high-tech industry and your salary is going up 20% per year, and many people's salaries do go up 20% per year, uh, you can you can deal with that. But if you are a common laborer, either in a rural area or pulling a cart in a city and earning $1.50 a day, and you've got three kids to support, it becomes impossible. Dave Strabers is with us today. He, of course, is the president of Mission India. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special in-studio guest today. He is the president of Mission India, Dave Stravers. Dave, just before the break, you made reference to some of the social turmoil that goes on in India. We've heard the stories about, for example, abuse against women, things of this sort. Uh, you talked too briefly about some of the, the sh- social friction, the economic friction, rather, within the country. What about the religious friction? Um, you make reference to the fact that not only is India one of the most populous Hindu nations, but also in the top perhaps five countries for a Muslim population. How much friction do we see taking place yeah. between those two religions along the continent? Yeah, some people claim that India is the top Muslim nation in the world with 175 million Muslims, uh, rivaling Indonesia and Pakistan. So India has an incredibly huge Muslim population. That is, the Muslim-Hindu relations are the number one overriding political concern in India. And the new elections, the national elections that are coming up next May, uh, this is the one issue that is going to be at the top of everyone's mind. Uh, the, the, uh, the opposition leader, Narendra Modi, for the Indian Nationalist Party called the BJP, is very infamous for being a Muslim hater. 
uh, someone who believes that India is only for Hindus. And uh, the best thing that could happen is if all the Muslims would go to Pakistan and uh, all the Christians would go somewhere else. Uh, that's the official political stance of the BJP party. And this party could could possibly win that election. Uh, there's been a tremendous uh, overriding charges of corruption against the, the party in control, the Congress party, the secular party. And the economy has not been doing that well in the last year or two, and there have been other other problems that have caused some people to say the BJP could win this election. So Muslim-Hindu relations become very violent, people are killed, and it wouldn't surprise anyone to see hundreds or thousands of people killed on both sides of this conflict. If that change takes place or this friction continues leading up to the elections next spring, uh, into that powder keg, how how challenging does it make Christian ministry then? Christians uh, will be victimized by either side, but especially by the Hindu nationalists. Uh, Christians are very worried about the BJP prospects. Uh, What will happen is... uh, This the Hindu nationalist. uh, We might say their culture, their teachings will give encouragement to all of the little anti-Christian groups that exist all over the country that would like to stop the growth of the church, that would like to intimidate workers and evangelists and converts. Five of the states of India already have anti-conversion laws, and uh, this could be a tremendous impetus for other states to implement anti-conversion laws that would would tend to put up obstacles to uh, either Hindus or Muslims receiving Christ. We, of course, historically have seen um, state-sponsored obstacles in other parts of the world, and yet in spite of all of that, the gospel continues to flourish. Do you see enough momentum in the growth of the church today at the grassroots level that in spite of maybe organized opposition up to and including institutionalized or government-sanctioned opposition, (laughs) is there any way to stop that train from rolling down the tracks? Craig, nothing can stop that train. <laughs> I'm happy to tell you uh, the main reason why we have persecution of believers in India today is the extremely fast growth of the church and the reception to the gospel on the part of the general population. It's it's the minority, the political power brokers, the Hindu extremists, the religious establishment in, in the Hinduism. These are the people that are afraid of what's happening. Mm. And uh, they're afraid because they see the openness now in the average uh, India household in the villages that once were so uh, hardened against any kind of uh, Christian work and now no longer are against it. So this is going to continue, and I don't think that uh, laws are, are going to stop this train from going. There's also a degree of pretty significant measurable transformation that you were mentioning to me off the air. For example, in the components of outreach of what Mission India does, uh, going in and addressing felt leads in an area, for example, such as literacy, uh, is having a significant impact. And I would imagine anyone that comes into that environment that is able to produce significant measurable transformation is is clearly not only going to gain some attention, but also set down some pretty solid roots. Yeah, Mission India has an adult literacy program that can bring a totally illiterate person to fifth grade uh, reading and writing and arithmetic level in one year. <laughs> we and, need to get you stateside. Yeah. We need to set up a couple of programs. It's, it's an That's amazing phenomenal. program. It works so well. It works well because the volunteer teachers come from local churches and they love the people they're working with. And we have a really good uh, system of accountability and reporting. And this program is in such high demand. We c- we just simply cannot respond to all of the of the requests we get 
from villages and communities who want this program. There, in any given year, there are three or four times as many requests for the program as we are able to respond to. There's something unique, too, in what you're doing in terms of the presence of Mission India in country, and that is that there is a very strong partnership with the local church. I mean, this is, in fact, largely driven by nationals, is it not? Yes, we have no expatriates living in India. It's all national run, and in the country, it's entire 100% collaborative. So we're not planning Mission India churches or winning Mission India converts. We're helping local churches all over the country in every state. Uh, from literally more than a thousand different groups of people that we help with their ministries. Do you find that national cooperation creates stronger, healthier than local growth, more sustainable growth? Uh, There are so many little organizations in India who God has called to raised up to work in a little area, but they have no... They have no backing, they have no contacts outside their region or maybe even outside their city. And all they need is a little bit of help, some training, some scriptures, some materials, uh, an organized program that that works. And so this kind of cooperation is extremely powerful when you have uh, different groups coming together, bringing their skills and combining them to reach a local village or a local slum in a city. Uh, It works incredibly well. From a partnership standpoint, that, of course, raises a big question. When you're doing so much that's kind of the the grassroots operation then, it always raises questions about, well, what of accountability? If I'm partnering, for example, with Mission India, how do I know that the dollars are actually going to make a difference? What kind of accountability is built in or a system of checks and balances? Yeah, we've been doing this uh, for quite a while, and our accountability reporting is the number one value for our staff and our partners in India. In fact, uh, one of the first things we teach to workers and their supervisors is to hold each other accountable, not only for the activity of the workers, but also for the objectives. So we know exactly how many people are enrolled in literacy. We know that last year 86% of them graduated and were able to pass that fifth grade exam. Uh, We know exactly what percent of them uh, became uh, Christians. We know exactly what percent their income went up, 56% increase in income last year. Uh, We track these all very carefully, and uh, we have staff all over the country that do this. So it's not just growth, it's sustained growth with the checks and balances so we can see the improvement that's what's happening nationally, not only in terms of the headcount, so to speak, Uh, but also in terms, too, of the transformation side of what the ministry is doing. Yeah, we call it SROI. You know what ROI is. Mm-hmm. Every business knows what is so ROI this is, is. Spiritual this return is on investment. Spiritual return on investment. Like and we define what are your spiritual objectives, and we know what we invest in each uh, place, and we know what the spiritual return was. And it also helps you when you're evaluating your program, trying to improve it. When you're evalu- evaluating the partner or the workers that you're training, you have a certain benchmark, a certain standard that you know is reasonable to expect. And uh, And frankly, the Indian leaders of these groups love it. Uh, They discover uh, that their capacity for ministry is even greater than they thought Mm -hmm. when they finish one of our programs. And certainly knowing that they've got the support and that there's a sense of accountability. You know, it's easier to stay on focus and on message if you know that you have somebody, a higher authority, so to speak, to whom you have to report eventually. That's right. And very important, Craig, is that this is not an American-run ministry within India. This is an an Indian-run, national-run 
Uh, the Indian workers are the ones that set the tactics and the strategies that have designed the programs, and we give them a lot of help, a lot of assistance, but it's theirs. And uh, there's, no, there's no foreign face to this program. Uh, very important in India that this is an, uh, Indi- a program run by Indians for Indians. And at the end of the day, one that is transformational in nature, life-changing in a spiritual standpoint. And a fun, I think, way for people to get introduced to the work of Mission India. Um, on your website, which for the benefit of listeners is missionindia.org, you have something called My Passport to India. Uh, take a moment, just give us a quick snapshot of that, if you would, Dave, because I think it can take listeners on an exciting adventure that are either not too deeply familiar with what's going on in India, India today, the opportunities and the challenges, but then, too, the dynamic work that's being done with Mission India and your partners in country. Well, yeah, Craig, and you started off by saying India is a high-impact place to visit. You can actually visit India through our website. We have a number of uh, small video segments there that illustrate life in India as well as the programs of ministry in India. Right now, there's a new series called Lost in India. Uh, You can just log right on, and, and the series is designed for children. Uh, specifically, it was designed for uh, homeschool families, but we found that uh, parents uh, everywhere, they love to watch this program with their children. Their little little exercises and to-do things to go with the video series. You watch a series of eight videos, and you get introduced to the country, the culture, the people. Um, there's a lot of humor in the program, and you also get to see what God is doing in a place where the name of Jesus is not known very well. The nation, as we said at the very get-go, is a paradox in some ways. There are curiosities at at so many levels. There's a certain mystique and, I think, allure about India because of the culture, its history, the religions. Um, And and into all of that, see the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ step in partnership with the local church. But again, uh, down through the years, the Mission India has been working there how many years now? Well, more than 30 years. More than 30 years. um, Has a demonstrated track record of providing long-term, measurable transformation. Transformation not just at a community level in terms of addressing felt needs, such as the literacy program that we talked about a moment ago, but most importantly from a a mission gospel um, viewpoint, um, spiritual transformation. If you'd like to get more information about the work and ministry of Mission India, again, I'll point you to the website, missionindia.org. That's missionindia.org. And if you'd like to be able to literally travel to India without the hassle of airports and customs and all of that, and without even having to buy an airplane ticket, then my passport to India might be a great way to see an incredible India that you've never imagined. On the web at My Passport to India, on the website at missionindia.org. Dave Stravers, thanks for dropping by and giving us an update. Thanks, Craig. It's great talking with you. Dave Stravers, president of Mission India. Again, details on the web at missionindia.org. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.